Uh, and firstly, I'm going to try and explain the unexplainable. Well, it's kind of, it's a little bit. You have no idea how many different definitions of the word paradox I actually tried out in this place. Even the definition of the word paradox is mind-boggling. Like it's the amount of different definitions and how they're trying to capture what's at the heart of the word paradox and what a paradox actually is was really complicated. But a paradox, if you haven't heard the word before, a paradox is simply this. It's a statement or idea that contradicts itself. It's a statement or idea that contradicts itself. So an example of a paradox would be these two statements. One, the sentence on the right is false. Two, the sentence on the left is true. And if you read either of those together and then try and match what they actually are saying, they can't both be right, but they could. One of them could be right. What's going on? It's kind of like a mind mender. Another example of a paradox is this. All I know is that I know nothing. So do you know it or do you not know it? Do you actually know nothing or do you know that you know nothing? And you can go around in circles and circles and circles. Or, or another example, uh, and this one might be something that you resonate with a little bit, is doing nothing is exhausting. Many times we joke about it and go, you know what, I wish I could just do nothing. But if you actually try and sit there and do nothing, or if you're stuck doing nothing all the time, that can actually be really exhausting. See, one of the things we have to understand about a paradox is just because it contradicts itself doesn't mean it isn't true. Uh, and that's one of the things that the, the hardest in terms of all the definitions are trying to bring out this idea of, yes, a paradox absolutely contains a contradiction. That, that's central to the idea of a paradox. There is a contradiction in place. But that doesn't mean that contradiction, that, that paradox isn't true. Another example of a paradox is which came first, the chicken or the egg? And you can go backwards and forwards on that all day. Well, the chicken had to have the egg so that it could, but then the egg had to birth the chicken. And it's, which, who knows? It's, it seems like a contradiction, but there has to be an answer. There has to be a truth to it. Put that to the side for a moment. I'll pick that up very shortly. Uh, we're continuing in our series today looking at a Christian worldview. We're going to spend the next couple of months digging in really deep at what does it mean to say that I have a Christian worldview? What is actually essential to being a Christian? What are the things there at the heart? Uh, what in many ways are the things that Christians have actually agreed on pretty much for the entire time that Christianity has existed? And in some cases, these are things that were even agreed on before Jesus came and they were part of the Hebrew faith, the Israelites at the time. And so today we're going to kick it off looking at the idea of the Trinity. God or gods? Uh, does Christianity teach there's one God? Does Christianity teach there's three gods? How does that work? What's going on? And so we're going to pick up this idea of the Trinity, and it might not surprise you to know, uh, the Trinity is considered a paradox. That the more you think about it, the more you dig into it, the more kind of confusing or uncertain you can sort of become, because it, it's, yeah, it's, just, it's trippy, and we'll look to it a bit more. So two of the questions that I want us to think through as we go through this today is the first one is this. Why do Christians believe in the Trinity? Like if it's a really complicated topic, if it's really difficult, shouldn't we just get rid of that idea? Must, if it's so complicated that it's so hard to understand, that must mean that it's not important. Let's just sort of shuffle that to the side. So why is it that Christians even bother 
with something that seems so strange and contradictory in some ways. Is the Trinity really important? Is it actually something that we need to believe, that we need to hold to, or can we just sort of get rid of that because it's the too hard basket? I like the too hard basket, but maybe not too hard. So what is the Trinity? Now, in case you didn't know what it was, in case you weren't sure about what is this whole idea of the Trinity, the Trinity is the idea that we have one God in three persons. So it's one God. Christianity teaches very, very firmly. It is not three gods. It's not the, the Father is a God, the Son is a God, the Spirit is a God. It is one God in three persons, three essences, three, the, the, you know, the substance is the same, but it's in three persons or people. Even the language around it is paradoxical. It's kind of hard to express. Uh, one of the analogies that is given for this at times uh, is the idea of water. Well, water can exist as ice, water can exist as liquid, and water can exist as steam. It can be each of those three different things, but they are all water. The challenge here, though, uh, is that it misses the idea that God is these three things at the same time. That though there is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, every one of those aspects of the Trinity is all of God at all times while still being separate. You with me? Are you confused yet? Because I know you have no idea how long I tried to try and work. How do you even express this? Like, how do you even explain it? So all analogies in some way rob the Trinity of something. Uh, another one that I've heard is it's like an apple. The apple has the flesh, it has the skin, and it has the core. And so all of that together make up God, but they've also got those distinctly different bits. But again, the idea of the Christian Trinity there is every one of the, every bit, every one of God, so God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, every one of those entities is fully God. Whereas if you have like an apple, the skin is not all of the apple, the flesh is not all of the apple, the core is not all of the apple. It's not perfect. But it's one of the ways that people can use to express what's going on. Um, Christians like pictures. Uh, historically, people couldn't read, and so pictures or ideas or diagrams uh, were often used. This one still requires you to be able to read, but it's one of the ideas that was used from the very early stage. It's called the Trinity Shield. Uh, it's this idea it's got God in the middle, and it's got the three different aspects of God. So God is the Son, God is the Father, and God is the Holy Spirit. But the Father is not the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is not the Son, and the Father is not the Son. They're all God, but they each have their own aspects. They each express God in a slightly different way at different times. Uh, another one that was used a lot was called the triquetra. Now, this one is one that is not only used in the Christian faith. So if you see this somewhere, that doesn't mean it's talking about the, the Trinity. In some ways, it's been adopted by the Christian faith to express something. Uh, now, what you can actually see there is there's actually two things going on. Firstly, there's the circle. You can see the big circle, and then you can kind of see three leaves. It's normally described as being three leaves. The three leaves are one continuous line. So it's one line which is weaved through in such a way that it creates three leaves. One line, three leaves. And then the circle around is symbolizing it being one. 
It's trying to express the idea that God is one God in three persons. And so that was one of the things that Christians took on, trying to express the Trinity uh, and what was going on with the Trinity. Now, why is this here? What's going on? So it was finalized. If you're wondering when did the Trinity become a thing, well, before this, but when was it formally adopted? As early as 325 CE, the Common Era, there was a thing called the Council of Nicaea. So the Council of Nicaea is where we get the Nicene Creed from that I talk about from time to time. And the whole premise of this was the church was wrestling with a whole lot of different questions and lots of theologies. What do we believe? What is the Christian faith? What is at the heart? What is at the essence? And what is essential? And they were wrapping together and trying to go, what do we have to believe to say that we actually follow the Christian faith? But what was actually taking place here was not creating something new. They were trying to actually recognize what actually happens in practice. Like, what do we actually see taking place in the church? What do we actually see taking place within people's beliefs? Some people get this idea that the Council of Nicaea came up with the Trinity, that it didn't exist and they came together and they invented the Trinity. No, the whole premise was they were trying to settle on what's already in practice. How do we then express that as our Christian teaching? So I want to go right now to why do we even believe this? Like there must be a reason, there must be a background, there must be some scripture or something behind it, which is why we believe in this idea. One of the first places we actually find the idea of the Trinity, even before we knew the Trinity was a thing, was way back in Genesis, in the very first verse of the Bible. The very first verse in the Bible reads like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And for those of us who are reading it in English, we look at that and go, okay, it's God. Okay, that's one God. Great. Easy. It's one God. We can get rid of this whole Trinity thing. Except, this word for God in the Hebrew is actually the plural form of the word. So, if we were to actually translate into, into English in that way, and there's a reason they don't, but it would be gods. In the beginning, gods created the heavens and the earth. Because the word here is plural. Elohim is the plural form of the word. Uh, the actual singular word would be Eloah. And I probably got that wrong, but that's as good as I can get today. Uh, so it's a plural form, but it's always connected. And this is where the English bit, I'm, I'm bringing some geeking out on English to some degree, that some go, oh, yay, exciting. And some go, ugh. But it's always connected with singular verbs and adjectives. So the words that are used around this plural form of the word God, they always use the singular verbs and the singular adjectives. Why don't they use the singular form of God? We don't entirely know because, to be honest, Israel didn't believe in a trinity. They believed in God. And we're going to come to that a bit later on. But one of the explanations or one of the ways that we've actually been looked into this is that right from the beginning, when God was inspiring the writers to write this book, even before we understood the Trinity to be a thing, he wove into the story of the creation story this idea of God being one, but there being more to the story than just that. 
So then we see this in verse 2. Now this earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. It's our first reference to the idea of there being a spirit to God, that, that God has a spirit and there's an aspect of God which is that space. And now this word for spirit of God is Ruach Elohim. Ruach Elohim. And the idea is that this is the breath. It's, you know, Ruach is either translated as breath or wind or spirit or mind. Throughout the Old Testament, if you see the word Ruach, it's either breath, wind, spirit or mind. It's this idea that in the beginning, the breath of God was hovering over the waters. That there's some aspect to God which is like a breath or a breathing. And that becomes important as we look at some of the other passages later on. Uh, In Genesis 1 verse 3, here's one of the places. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And then we see in John chapter 1, verse 1 to 3, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You catch it? The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Well, which one is it? Is he with God or is he God? Like, How can you be with God but also be God? And how does that work out? He was with God in the beginning. Through him... All things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In John, we get one of the first expressions that led to the belief in the Trinity. It was when John was trying to explain who is this Jesus and how is he connected to God and how is he connected to creation. And he called Jesus the Word. And it's connected to that idea in Genesis of there being a breath or of there being a a, a speaking or or something coming of that nature. That in the beginning, Jesus was both with God, but he also was God. And that Jesus was a part of all that was made and created by God in the beginning. Uh, Why didn't Israel believe in the Trinity? Because that thrilled. Israel did not believe in the idea of the Trinity. Uh, they were one of the biggest pushbacks in the early days of the Christian faith were the Jewish Christians. The Jewish Christians were like, you can't say that God is three. God is one. Because that's what they teach, their scripture taught. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 says this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So there you go. Get rid of your Trinity. Forget about it. The Lord is one. Now, interestingly here, the word that is translated as one, it can actually mean first. But it was always taken by the Jewish followers to note God as being one being. That the word that is used there doesn't have to mean one. It can mean first. It can mean part of. And that's one of the ways that now as we look back and we go, I wonder if that's actually what was taken from. Uh, Part of the wrestle of the Nicene Creed, part of the reason why they were trying to actually work out what to do, was they were trying to match the experience of the early church with the monotheistic roots of the Jewish faith. There was no doubt that Jesus was a continuation of the the faith that the Jewish nation had held to before Jesus came. This was not a new faith. This was not a new religion. 
This was a continuation of the Israelite way. But their experience and their expression in the early church so, so painted to this idea of the Trinity and of God having being in three persons. They were trying to wrestle with how to actually bring these things together. And that was where they landed on the idea and the expression of the Trinity of one God in three persons. They, they, they were very, very strongly held to the idea that, okay, it is one God. We're not saying that it's actually three gods. The, the Jews weren't wrong. It wasn't that there was actually three gods and they just missed two of them and now we've discovered those two. No, it was one God and this is how it plays out. Uh, in Luke, we read this. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice from came from heaven saying, you are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. We have here right at the very baptism of Jesus, one of the crescendo moments of Jesus' life on earth. We have all three persons of the Trinity present. We have Jesus being baptized. We have the Holy Spirit descending on him in bodily form, like a dove. And we have a voice from heaven saying, you are my son, meaning it's coming from the Father. You are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Again, the expression, the experience of the early church was God in this way, being in three persons. Uh, Matthew 28, verse 19, when Jesus is instructing his disciples, what are you to do when you go out? What is the message that you are to give? How are you going to express your teaching to the people as you go out and, and share my great commandment and great commission. Therefore, go and make disciples. That's what the church exists to do. Go and make disciples of all nations. What do you do? You baptize them. And as you baptize them, you baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That when Jesus was giving instructions about what the early church was to do, what was to be their practice, what was to be at the heart of their teaching, he instructed them to baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. This is at the heart of the Christian faith. And all three parts of the Trinity are present in Jesus' instructions. Uh, in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14, so it goes beyond just Jesus. So the church sort of takes the idea that Jesus has uh, and it becomes this. And so a lot of the times when Paul is actually saying farewell, uh, we have other books, they're not in the Bible, but other letters that were written by Christians in the early days. Uh, and so we read this in 2 Corinthians verse, chapter 13, verse 14. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So a lot of greetings, a lot of farewells, a lot of letters were ended in this kind of format. Connecting that idea of the Trinity. Taking that, tri it's called the triune blessing. Including in your farewells something to do with the Father, something to do with the Son, something to do with the Holy Spirit. No matter where we go throughout the New Testament scriptures, and 
through the experience of the early church right up into the point of the Nicene Creed where they recognized what was already in practice. The Trinity was central to understanding who this God was. Because at the heart of it all, the Trinity fully expresses the full reality of God. The, the Trinity fully expresses it. It is the full reality of God. Without any one of the aspects of God, without the Father, without the Son, without the Holy Spirit, you actually don't have a full picture of who this God is. So what are the, some of the things that we actually get by actually experiencing God in Trinity? Well, one of the things is it demonstrates that God actually exists perpetually for all time, for all time before and for all time to come. Perpetually exists in community. We're designed for community because we are made in the image of God. We're not made to be alone. We're not made to journey through life by ourselves. We're not made to just, just be us. Part of our expression of being made in the image of God is that we're actually meant to be in community. Part of the reason Jesus called the church into existence was to be his community of followers, to be his body. He is the head and the church is the body. And that is connected to the expression of the Trinity. That the Father is perpetually in relationship with the Son, which is perpetually in relationship with the Holy Spirit, which is perpetually in relationship with God. It is central to understanding the Christian faith. Uh, God desires to invite us into this experience of eternal community in expressing to the church. And what, why didn't he do this to the Israelite people? We actually don't know. We don't know why he didn't express himself in this way. Why was it that only, to the, only once the church came along did we get the full expression of who God is. We don't really know. But what we do know is that God desires to invite us into this space, to be in this place of community, to understand and to desire and to be a part of learning what it means to get along with other people, because that's really easy. We never have any problems whatsoever getting along with other people. Like we always do. But God invites us into that space. Uh, the other one is that God the Father sent God the Son and now gifts us God the Holy Spirit. The Trinity is intrinsically linked to the salvation story. It is at the heart of the Christian faith. We can't truly believe in Jesus. We can't fully understand just what it meant for God the Father to send Jesus' Son to die on the cross and to now be able to gift us the Holy Spirit. We can't fully understand this story without understanding the Trinity nature of who God is. Uh, the reason I started with this one as we start to work through the rest of our series uh, is it is it is right at the heart. It is right at the center. And it is the most complicated thing to understand. Because it is a paradox that if you ever sit there and try and like imagine in your brain and you sort of try and follow the, the wise of that he's God and he's the Father and, he's, and how are they one but they're three and you just, it just kind of erupts. Like I know I've tried to do it a few times and my brain starts to hurt just in doing it. It is only understood in and by faith and, and going, I can see how clearly it's woven in and through the scriptures 
it's clearly woven in and through the expression and the experience of the early church. And it helps us understand the community. The Trinity expresses the full reality of God. And it is at the heart of a Christian worldview. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for who you are. We pray as we, in our own minds, try and grapple with and understand and, and, and come to know what this all looks like. We pray that you would help us each day. To sit in the tension of not completely getting what the Trinity is and looks like. We pray that you would encourage us and inspire us and help us as we follow you. To live out the community that you're calling us to express. And Lord, we look forward to an eternal future as we get to know more and more what it means to live in community with you. We thank you in Jesus' name.